In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have several not-so-fun topics to talk about. Uh, <laughs> one, one fun topic that I think we'll have a good conversation about towards the end. Today we're going to talk about COVID-19, which is the fun topic. Just kidding. It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> then we're going to talk about um, some of the proposals in Congress about police reform, specifically juxtaposing the Republican proposals with the Democratic proposals, and then we'll probably talk about uh, ways in which we think both of them can improve. And then we're going to end the conversation by talking about the principle of social media censorship. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. And I'm excited to be back with you, Nathan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was... I really did enjoy doing my episode with Jess, and I really did enjoy uh, listening to you do your episode with Jess, but it's been two weeks I since know. we've been together on exactly. this. Yeah, I felt I felt exactly the same way. It was very nice to have a week off, I will say. Yeah. I sometimes yeah. forget, like, just in the, you know, the habit of doing the prep for this, how much work it really is. But, like, it's basically, like, putting together a research document every week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. it's, it feels like I'm in school again. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of it was stuff that I was already doing, mm -hmm. but there's definitely a lot more, I think, responsibility that goes into it because I want to make sure that all the information that I'm bringing in is completely 100% accurate mm -hmm. and thought up because I don't want... I The last thing I want to do is mislead anybody. Yeah, totally. Um, But... Uh, I, I, I thought it was kind of funny that you and Jess had mentioned that while Nathan is editing this, he's probably playing Witcher. And that was absolutely true. I was playing Witcher when I heard that. And I was just like, ha! Um, so, and I'll probably be playing more Witcher tonight while I'm editing this. Um, so go. I will be tossing a coin to my Witcher. <laughs> Don't do that to our audience. Don't get that in their heads. You're oh, it's a bad man. It's there. It's there. Um... All right. So I'm pumped for today. So, but Me before too. we get into the specific topics, there's just one small story that I just, I just got to talk about real quick. So Trump. What? Uh, and this a was, story about Trump? That's so yeah, surprising. Yeah, story about Trump. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, this was on, uh, let's see, June 28th. So that was on Sunday. He tweeted out a video his caption was, thank you to the great people of the villages. The radical left do-nothing Democrats will fall in the fall. Corrupt Joe is shot. See you soon. Explanation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. So the village, for those of you that don't know, is a basically a retirement community in Florida. You know, and older people do tend to support Trump more. So he obviously has very high feelings towards them. So the video that he tweeted out had a very interesting thing within the first eight seconds of it. So there's this guy on a golf cart with a bunch of, like, Trump merchandise all over it. And he's screaming at protesters 
white power, white power. And Trump tweeted this. Now, this was about, I believe it was like a two-minute video. It was like a two-minute video. Now, if this had been like a 20-minute video, and at one point in the middle of it, someone had shouted white power, and it was like, you know, it was hard to hear. It was hard to listen. It was, it was hard to, to um, like, there was audio problems in the way. I might have been like, okay, maybe he made a mistake. But it's very clear if you watch the video and it's within the first like eight seconds of the video. Mm. So he pretty quickly took down the tweet after, you know, the White House went into panic mode, realizing, oh, my God, he just tweeted white. He just <laughs> tweeted white power. Um, <laughs> they were like, oh, my God, I hope he doesn't prevent us from taking it down. <laughs> um, so anyways, they claim that he didn't hear that part, which means he either just tweeted out a video and didn't even watch it, which is irresponsible, or he's lying yeah. because they say it in the first eight seconds of the video. So I just want to push back on one thing that you said, which is like, okay, we could, we might be able to chalk it up to a mistake. If it was a long video and someone said white power kind of quietly, like I, I totally get that inclination but we should resist trying to put these things in Trump adjusted terms because the fact is that you are the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth. You have people working for you. You should not be like, like one, why are you watching this video? Have a staffer watch it. If you, if you like, he'll summarize it yeah. in a memo, like, like have someone review it. There's no, but he wouldn't no read the memo. But well, yeah, he can't read. That's the problem. <laughs> he can only watch videos. He's exactly. Like, he has them. Perform but apparently, out he can't even do that. <laughs> interpretive dances of the bills that he's supposed to sign. Um, <laughs> no, but like, but that's the problem. Like, there is no world in which this is acceptable as a mistake or as, like, or his lying about it. It's just like how I, like. I feel like we've fallen so far from like yeah. the respect and the, the expectations of that office. Like he's not yeah. just a buffoon. He's also the president. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that if he had done that, it would be completely okay. Totally. Um, like it would still be, but like at least you could potentially sure. see how someone could make that mistake. Yeah, sure. Like, Especially like a, it would yeah. still be a mistake, but at least you could see how someone might, accidentally make that mistake um there's no way there's no plausible deniability here he yeah, cannot totally. pretend that he watched this video and he didn't hear that part to be fair it's pretty impressive that a cheetah with thumbs can watch and tweet so <laughs> <laughs> that is a fair point it is a fair point <laughs> all righty so anyways so let's switch to a lighter topic COVID-19. all righty <laughs> so let's update the numbers uh, so we're every I, everything's getting better, right? So so the president mm. keeps saying that you know we've beaten the virus, that everything's winding down, we can get back to normal. Is that true? Well, he might think that that's true if he was looking at like worldwide data, <laughs> like if he if he <laughs> if he missed the the title of the graph or whatever, he'd be like, yeah, that's probably true. Because so worldwide, we've had a total of 10.6 million cases with 513,000 deaths. Terrible. But Ooh. at this point, 55% of those cases have recovered, which 
is better than last week, which is good. And that's like over half, which means that we're potentially starting to make progress. Now, I did want to correct one thing I said last week, by the way. Last week, I said that eventually we'd get to 100% recovered. You'd have to take out the amount of people that died. So it's re- yeah. it's the yeah. re- recoveries minus death is the actual percentage of cases that we'd get to. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. so it would be more like, given our current death rate, like 97% recovered ultimately. Yeah. But yeah. in the U.S., um, we've had a total of 2.7 million cases with 130,000 deaths. So, again, significantly more than last week. And we're only at 41% recovered at this point. And on top of that, that's down from 42% recovered last week. So the, the recent like surge in cases, um, you know, we've had, we've had cases accelerate ahead of recoveries. And so we're actually, week over week, losing ground. And I was talking to my dad about this, and he was pointing out that one important point to bring up about the virus is the fact that it has been getting less deadly. Mm-hmm. And that's good news. Yeah. You know, you might have noticed that the overall mortality rate has decreased. And that's because hospitals are getting better at fighting the virus. They're getting more familiar with it. They're developing better treatment methods. Mm-hmm. And that is 100% a great thing. Um, and the yeah. hope is that we can eventually get to the point where we have fought it enough to where it is, um, you know, maybe one day just as bad as the flu. <laughs> uh, but um, the yeah. hope is that... Yeah, just killing tens of thousands of people a year. Yeah, exactly. Um, but another point to bring up about this is that the fact that the longer this pandemic has gone the more we've been able to decrease the mortality rate because we've developed more treatment really does demonstrate how important social distancing Mm -hmm. and uh, staying home and isolating as much as possible has been. Yeah. So you had so many people who are making the argument of, well, if most people are just going to get it anyway, might as well just charge in head on. Yeah. But no, because number one, and we already talked about this number one, you're going to overwhelm hospitals. Mm-hmm. But number two, which is something that we're, now, that we're now seeing, if it all happens at once, people don't have as much time to develop better treatment. Yeah, if it all happened like really early on, we wouldn't have any of these, these yeah. ways of treatment. So it. if we're assuming that most people are going to get the disease anyway, ideally, you want to get to the dis- you want to get the disease late in the pandemic after we figured out how to actually treat it. Totally. Yeah, I think I think people have this weird sim- oversimplification that the mortality rate is just the mortality rate, you know, like yeah. and and the contagion, the rate that the disease spreads um, is just the rate at which it spreads. And and the things that we do don't have a huge impact on that. But the fact is that when you get the disease in like the overall life of the pandemic, how many people have it at any one time literally changes how deadly the disease will be. And the same is true about how contagious it will be is, you know, the more social interaction we have, like intuitively we know this is true that the more social interaction we have, the more contagious the disease is. But I feel like people don't, they think of it as a, intrinsic property of the disease itself rather than a combination of the disease's properties and our social structures and the way we interact. But to your point, like we have made 
I've been blown away by the amount of progress that some that we've made worldwide in addressing this thing. Like the fact that we have testing, that we have an antibody test, that you know we're starting to develop therapies to like help people survive this thing is very impressive. And like people talk about like, well, we may be able to have a vaccine in 18 months and that's a long time. But the fact that we're actually making progress towards that timeline when I think the shortest vaccine ever developed took four years, that's a very impressive thing. And so like yeah. we, we talk a lot about the failures of our national response, mostly due to failures in leadership, being behind the ball, getting slow to start. But the fact is that like people have been doing some really excellent work on this. Yeah. And if we give them more time to do it, we could get to some much better results. Yeah. That's why we can't just go on with this attitude that we've seemed to take in the United States of, oh, I'm tired of this whole COVID thing. Yeah. Whatever. I'm just going to just going to start going out again. Screw it. Yeah. No. The level of conspiracy theories that I have heard about mm. mask wearing. <laughs> yeah. How did this get politicized? Like, how did wearing a mask become a political issue? Yeah, seriously. You can even have an American flag printed on your mask. You could you know, not screw get it. Put, more patriotic. Put, put Trump's America on your goddamn mask. Sure. I don't care. Just wear a freaking mask. Yeah, seriously. It's like, yeah, like, I don't understand. You get weird looks from people sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's... And the thing is, you know, and we've talked about this on the pod before. It's not just about protecting yourself. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people take the approach or take the, the point of view, the libertarian point of view of I'm only hurting myself by not wearing a mask. That's not true. In fact, for the most part, wearing a mask is much more about protecting other people than it is about protecting yourself. If you are asymptomatic and you are wearing a mask, the way that you're most likely to spread that disease is through spit particles. And that will get caught by your mask. So when people say it just affects me, you're just not being accurate. Yeah. At the end of the day, you are putting other people at risk. And look, I get it. I hate wearing a mask. I'm on the autism spectrum and it screws with my sensory. I hate wearing it. I hate it. You know, I once almost had a, a meltdown in the middle of Costco because of how uncomfortable that mask was. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I sucked it up and I wore it. Yeah. I also hate wearing a mask, but you know, like <laughs> I don't hate yeah. it more than I like don't want to have the people around me like, have an increased potential of death. I, like, what kind of trade-off is that? Exactly. Yeah. So we need to keep taking this seriously. And before we, before we kind of wrap up talking about some of, the, some of the important stuff that's happening and some of the positive stuff that's happening with COVID, I did want to mention that there's actually some potentially good news on a, a steroid that has recently been tested and found to be pretty effective in reducing the mortality of COVID, actually. It's called yeah. uh, dexamethasone. And unlike many of the other studies that have been conducted, this was not like a, a rinky-dink, like 10-person study. This was a trial of 2,104 test patients given wow. six milligrams of dexamethasone for 10 days. And 
then their outcomes were compared to a control group of 4,321 patients receiving standard care. And the steroid recipient group um, experienced death at one-third the rate of patients already on ventilators and one-fifth the rate of patients receiving supplemental oxygen from other places. So the study finds that it's not really effective at like fighting the disease itself. It helps your body survive really severe cases of the disease. So ultimately it helps lower the mortality rate for like the most affected people, which is, and, and it lowers it by a third. That's like, that's really significant. And yeah. like beyond like the level of like a statistical BIP. Now the, um, now the data on this is still all coming out. So they haven't published everything yet. So, you know, don't go out and try to like buy it on the street or something like that. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, at least this is an encouraging sign from an actual large scale study. Yeah, I, that, that's it's actually the first time I've heard of that. That's that's really that's really promising. Um, all right, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit more about the response during this this pandemic. Hmm. Um, so remember how we keep ridiculing Donald Trump every time he says it's the testing. <laughs> if there were no testing, there'd be no cases. That's why we have cases, because we have testing. He keeps saying it. He keeps saying he it. He keeps so true. saying it. And look, if it weren't for the fact that Michael and I have kind of established a rule that Donald Trump cannot receive a Dershowitz bag award or an asshat of the week... Like this would be this is ideally mm -hmm. what you're looking at when you're looking at the Dershowitz bag. For those of you that are new to the pod, uh, the Dershowitz bag award is an award that uh, short for uh, you know we shorten it to D bag award um, is an award that we present on the pod for people who make the most hilariously self defeating stupid arguments, mm -hmm. and it's very rarely very rarely given. It is a yeah. It is yeah. I think we've had like. I think two. We've had, we've only given it to two people so far, including Alan um, Dershowitz. <laughs> well, he's—I mean—he's the namesake. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so let me let me put it in terms that Republicans can understand, and and I seriously, I I know that probably sounded super. That sounded really condescending. <laughs> I didn't I didn't mean for it to sound that condescending, because I know that we do have a few conservatives that listen. But let me, let me put it a different way. If we completely abolished all forms of law enforcement, we'd have no crime. Mm -hmm. Like, if we didn't enforce the law, didn't enforce any law, there would be no crime whatsoever. Because when a person commits a crime and you arrest them, you have a criminal. Mm -hmm. But if you don't arrest them, you don't have a criminal. Yeah. Or even so, like more narrowly, if we didn't file arrest reports, there would be no crime. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So the argument that if we just had no tests, that that, that that would solve the problem, then you're not talking about a problem with a pandemic. You're talking about a problem with public relations. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's been one of the major flaws of Trump's response throughout this whole pandemic is that it's like he's not trying to win against the disease. He's trying to win against like the public relations battle of this whole thing. Yeah. He's trying to like, he's trying to just get out of this with a good reputation and beyond just, you know, the obvious division of focus, taking his attention away from actually solving the thing. It leads to weird cases like this where if we didn't like shine a spotlight on the fact that, you know, he seems to be wanting to literally reduce the amount of testing in the United States, he might actually do it in order to win this public relations battle. Like his ego is he said he putting, would. yeah, his he putting said that's what the, he wanted. the people of the United States at risk yet again. Yeah. He said that's what he wanted. And then yeah. the white house was scrambling like, Oh no, he was joking. He was just joking. And then a reporter asked him, was it a joke? And he was like, I don't joke. Yeah. And then, just, I could just imagine like his surrogates just thinking, no, God damn it. You idiot. <laughs> my favorite part. My favorite part is that I guess someone finally got through to him. Like someone finally did the interpretive dance that got his attention because he was then on Fox news last week, um, having a discussion with Sean Hannity. And he says, so it wasn't a discussion. Sean Hannity was Fair just enough. kissing his ass the yeah. entire time. It was, <laughs> Like it was an insult to journalism. That interview was an insult to journalism. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was not. It was not a discussion. It was. It was. A, it was basically propaganda. But um, Trump said sometimes I jokingly say or sarcastically say, if we didn't do tests, we would look great. But you know, it's not the right thing to do. It's like you just figure that out. Like, did someone yeah. have to write a memo for you on that? Or no, no, no. Of course, yes. they didn't write it. Yeah, you can't right. read. Yeah, he doesn't read. <laughs> You had to watch you know, it on again, Fox interpretive News. Dance. Yeah. Interpretive dance. <laughs> it's just like, I don't, it's like, come on, yeah. dude. You literally just said you weren't joking. And because he's the president, th this is the annoying part. Because yeah. he's the president, we have to take the stuff he says seriously. And we have to respond to it as if it is serious, mm -hmm. which it's not. But we have to do that. So let's actually look at the substance of what he's saying. So first off, what is true? What is not true? Well, what is true, and this is where the truth ends, is that we do have, we, in terms of the raw number, we do have more tests than any other country in terms of the raw number. However, it is important to also note that we have a much higher population. When we were, when the rest of the world, I should say, was in the middle of the height of the pandemic, the best number to look at at that point is testing per capita, you know, accounting for population. And that number during the height of the pandemic in the world was, I think the United States was like somewhere in the mid twenties. Now the United States, uh, and this is according to ourworldindata.org, which is a great source, by the way, um, we're about 11th, which I mean, isn't bad, mm -hmm. but there's, but there's something to also keep in mind with that. And that is the fact that there are a lot of countries that are starting to reopen because they have effectively eliminated the virus or at least have eliminated 
the virus in large proportions. So even that number, right, at this point in time is not the best number to look at in terms of are more tests the reason why we seem to have mm. more cases? Yeah, because so more tests wouldn't be at, necessary if the disease was less prevalent. So you have a place like New Zealand, they don't need to test that much. Exactly, exactly. So a better number to look at would be our positivity rate. So that means what percentage of tests we give end up positive. So currently, the United States, and this is according to the same source, ourworlddata.org, and this is um, as of uh, June 30th, and this is test performed by the CDC, 7.5% of tests end up being positive. And in terms of where we are in comparison to the rest of the world, like, and, and when it comes to this, we want that number to be lower because a lower number means that less people are testing positive for the disease. We're like almost 50 countries down. Wow. And, and looking at some of the countries ahead of us, or, or I guess I should say below us in positivity rating, uh, a lot of them are major countries. You know, Australia, South Korea, um, the United Kingdom, Germany, uh, Austria, Portugal, Canada, Italy, Japan. So overall, it's not the fact that we have more testing that is causing us to have more cases. It's the fact that we have more cases because our response to this sucked. Exactly. Yeah, it's the fact that we have more cases that test positive. It's it's like it's like the the biggest tell to me of this whole thing is the very fact that Trump thinks testing is bad for him. That means that he thinks that there are more cases out there that haven't been tested yet that he doesn't want people to know about. It literally makes it make it means that he thinks that they're doing an even worse job than they're actually they have data to represent, which is a really scary thing. Like he's if 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 they were doing a great job, more testing would be an unambiguously good thing. More testing yeah. is like showing that they're doing an effective job. It makes you know testing itself. Everybody's pointing to as as a success factor, and that's a good thing. Like more testing of negative cases, obviously a good thing, and. So more testing would be unambiguously good, except he clearly thinks that they're doing a worse job than we even know about. He also seems to demonstrate some level of self-awareness, at least, in where he stands with the American people. But again, that is that right there is what he's panicking over. Yeah. He's not panicking over the actual... Uh, the actual virus itself mm -hmm. or the fact that it's killing people. He's panicking over how it's affecting him. He actually said in that, in that interview that, uh, that Michael mentioned, he said, quote, Joe Biden is going to be your president because some people don't love me. Maybe like, and, and this was in the context of him, um, insulting, uh, Joe Biden's cognitive ability, which, you know, I, I agree with him, but I don't think he should be the person to, to say that. Mm -hmm. In fact, he even 
even in that statement, he said, um, it, it was like, I don't want to be non-polite, but he can't, he can't string a sentence together. <laughs> it's like, dude, I mean, he, he's one to talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, no, no, I, I agree that I have concerns about Joe Biden's cognitive decline, but you don't get to make that argument, dude. Yeah. (laughs) And you especially don't get to make that argument. Like when the alternative is you, I mean, you're both, you, you both have cognitive issues. At least, at least one of you started out bright. And what he's picking up on here is that his response to the pandemic has hurt his approval rating and has hurt his credibility. So a study conducted by the Pew Research Center found that 30% of respondents said that they think Trump gets the facts right about COVID most of the time. 30%, which you might notice is also the size of his base. (laughs) 30% too many? Yeah, and also 30%. (laughs) Yeah, 100% too many. (laughs) Um, And so when you compare that to where, you know, they think good information comes from, it basically stacks up to the fact that they think Trump is one of the least reliable sources of information about COVID. So 64% said they think the CDC gets the facts right. 53% said that of their local governor or government. Um, 50% said that that of local media and 44% said it of media in general. And so Trump at 30% is way, way behind. So in one way is encouraging. People are starting to distrust the liar. Um, on the other side, it's not encouraging that we have a president that we have no ability to have confidence in um, the information that he's sharing about uh, a, a pandemic. And also not so encouraging is that 54% of Republicans yeah. think he's right about COVID and uh, only 9% of Democrats do. So <laughs> the guy <laughs> said that you should inject bleach into your lungs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Dude, at some point. Yeah, I don't point. know how you recover from that. Seriously. <laughs> and now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, Michael, I forgot to pay the Pie Piper, and he just wasn't having it. But luckily, I don't have any kids, so he said I could pay him back as long as I include a tip. So that's what this is. <laughs> and also, you know, to make the world a little bit of a better well, that's, place. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that, that's a positive. Mm. <laughs> so uh, what is our tip for good this week? Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is being aware of the media you consume. Specifically, the biases and also the fact reporting. The factual reporting. And we actually have a resource to point you towards. So there's this, there's this resource online. It's called Media Bias Fact Check. And it is a comprehensive database in which you can plug in any news media source. Well, almost any. I'm assuming we don't have a page on it yet. Um, <laughs> 
But uh, anyway, it's it's a new... S- the only zero bias media source <laughs> in existence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're definitely not biased. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we're fair and balanced. Um, so you can put any news source into it and it will not only tell you what their bias is but it will also say what their level of factual reporting is now it's important to distinguish those two things because it is people are often very quick to assume that bias means non-factual and that's Mm -hmm. not true that's not always true a story can be completely factual And another story about the same issue can also be completely factual, but it could lead you, depending on which one you read, to drastically different conclusions. And that is Mm -hmm. because biases sometimes might impact which facts we play up or even which facts we decide to report in the first place. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the information is inaccurate. It just means you need to get a full picture of it. So the next time you read an article from some type of news source and you're not, and you haven't heard of it, you're not sure if it's a reliable source, go to media bias fact check, just type it in there and it will give you a pretty good rating on the source. Now, to be clear, it was created by humans humans are imperfect Hmm. so it's not a perfect measure it's not the ultimate god made measure but it does do a pretty good job of justifying its decisions and uh being very clear as to why it rates certain media sources what it rates it and that's tips for good So in this next segment, we wanted to talk a little bit about the police reform bills that are working their way through Congress um, in different stages. And we wanted to talk about this to take a little bit of a comparative view between the two. So we want to look at the Democratic House bill. We wanted to look at the Senate Republican bill. And then we wanted to compare them to some of the things that people are actually asking for in the activist community first off um npr did a pretty good uh overall juxtaposition between the um the two bills so first off there was a lot of criticism from the republicans of democrats for blocking an early version of the republican senate bill Mm -hmm. so let's look at what it actually called for So the Republican proposal um, called for using incentives, federal reporting requirements, and training to diminish the use of chokeholds and other restraints and no-knock warrants. It also provided funding for police body cameras. However, it did not require Mm. it. So that's kind of the theme of the Republican bill, which is incentivize it throw some money at it but not require it what that basically means is that under the republican bill it's please stop choking black people if it's not too Mm -hmm. much trouble instead of 
if you keep choking black people, we are going to prosecute your ass. Yeah, exactly. And it's got so so that's that's a big that's a big thing. So the reality is that Congress is not all powerful in being able to control what's happening in these police departments because like of the 18,000 police departments in the United States or or you know law enforcement agencies, only 3 of them or so are federal. And so the the largest the large majority of our law enforcement agencies are local at the state level. And so what actions the federal government can take to in, like individually get in there and and regulate stuff they're not universal and so there is a, a certain amount of cajoling that has to take place yeah but they can definitely take action to improve accountability to remove um you know roadblocks to uh, to prosecuting misconduct and things like that. And that that's one of the biggest differentiators of the, the Republican and the Democratic bills is that the Democratic House bill has some of those actual teeth, whereas the Republican bill, to Nathan's point, it talks a lot about incentives and it talks a lot about, you know, trying to withhold funding for for certain things and encourage and encourage reporting and and so for example it it requires it directs the justice department to develop and provide training on de-escalation tactics um to police departments which is like which is great you know, we want to have that happen but there aren't teeth to like make the departments take the training yeah. or to necessarily reduce federal funding if they don't yeah they did, however, throw one bone to the Democrats, and it was to put in a provision to make lynching a federal hate crime. Now, when you hear me say that, you might be thinking, wait, it's not already? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> and yeah, lynching is not considered a federal hate crime. Now, it is important to mention that that doesn't mean that, like, if a person lynches someone that they get off scot-free. That's not what it means. What it means is that it's not treated federally as a hate crime. And the reason why we distinguish between hate crimes and regular crimes is because someone who commits a hate crime represents a larger danger to society. So uh, one argument that I've heard, and I've actually... Uh, I've actually heard this argument even from people on the left, friends of mine, is, well, why are hate crimes a thing? Because you can't know what's in someone's head. You can't judge a crime purely based on intention. But the issue is, that's what we already do. I mean, mm -hmm. think about the way we judge murder. There is a huge difference between premeditated murder murder in the heat of the moment or manslaughter, you know, involuntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. You get less of a punishment if you accidentally kill someone than you do if you kill somebody and you premeditate and it was premeditated because at the end of the day, your intention, what was in your mind does represent who you are and it rep and it does tell us what you might do in the future. So if you are somebody that has so much hatred towards an ethnic group that you are willing to attack them or kill them, 
then hell yes, you deserve a worse punishment. Because we got to get your ass out of society. We got to protect society from you. Now, mm -hmm. one, one note about this. The original bill, the reason th this was actually proposed, uh, I believe it was a, a few months ago, and it was blocked by Senator Rand Paul. It was blocked in committee, in committee by Senator Rand Paul. And the reason why he said that he blocked it was he thought that the provisions would be too broadly enforced. So specifically, he was talking about minor injury. How it does? His argument was that the bill didn't distinguish between an attack that is racially motivated but results in a minor injury, versus an attack that might result in a you know more severe injury. And how if a person causes a minor injury to somebody, then they could get like ten years in prison for it. But again, it comes down to. It does come down to what was your intention? What were you trying to do? And if what you were trying to do was attack somebody because of the color of their skin, then hell yes, it's a hate crime. And hell yes, you should get a worse punishment for it because you have demonstrated that you are willing to attack someone because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. And that makes you dangerous. And, and let's be clear about this also. It's not like there's a mandatory minimum sentence on hate crimes of 10 years. The actual uh, code, U.S. Code 249, on hate crime acts, subsection A, subsection 1, subsection A, um, refers to shall be imprisoned not more than 10 years. So, like, we leave it up to our courts all the time to determine the appropriate punishment. Yeah. The fact that it's open-ended, that if you cause someone bodily injury, you have the ability to be sentenced to up to 10 years in prison doesn't mean that if you, you know, give someone a hangnail, you're going to get 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem with mandatory minimums, yeah. which is a Republican thing that they push, yeah. <laughs> which is also something that we are very strongly against. Yeah. So the, so the fact that lynching wasn't a hate crime is insane. Like we're like a hundred years too late on this. Yeah. It's abs it's insane. And, and the fact, um, the fact that they, they put that provision in the bill and then there was this there was this exchange that Senator John Cornyn had with Kamala Harris about this, where he basically said that you should be grateful that we added this, you know, yeah. and you are. Uh, and he was basically saying, like, the fact that you are voting against this bill that includes the very bill that you supported that you helped write like that, that basically that makes you a hack. Mm -hmm. and it's like, OK, I'm glad that you recognize that lynching is bad. Yeah. I mean, good, good that you recognize that. But you don't get brownie points for that. Yeah. Like, that is not a win. That isn't something that you get to use as a political tool so that you can exact something else from the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And if you treat it that way, you're an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's pretty remarkable. Like, the amount of outrage on the Republican side that the Democrats didn't um, go along and support this bill is, is like, it's so it's seems like palpably false. Yeah. It's like, they're just trying to give the impression that something is going on. And, and to be fair, like what the Democrats voted against was bringing this bill to public, like to debate on the Senate floor. And the, 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 you know, 
Mitch McConnell was going to bring it to debate with the allowance of getting to amend the bill. And so, you know, so like Republicans and Democrats would have been able to amend the bill in like real time via debate. But the problem is that like what the Democrats were really trying to avoid in this case, um, when they, then they referred to the bill as like not being salvageable in that way is the perception is like the grandstanding, the show of something going on without anything actually getting done at all. Yeah. Yeah. And so like spending months debating this on the house floor when, or on the, on the Senate floor, when you would, you know, be able to work out a lot of the details in the background and then bring it to the Senate floor to debate and, you know, take votes. It seems to me like that makes way more sense. And that's a much more efficient and normal process. Yeah. And, and their bill, the bill from the house did ban a lot of the things that yes. Republicans are trying to disincentivize, you know, yeah, chokeholds. Exactly. Um, they yeah. also uh, lowered the legal standard to pursue a criminal. So that way yep. you aren't like, you know, beating the hell out of, but out of somebody who has committed a minor ass crime. Yeah. Um, totally. Also, and, and they made it and they made it more. So their bill also contains the ability to pursue personal liability for an officer that has yeah. administered misconduct, yeah. which is the whole qualified immunity thing, yeah. which we can talk about a little bit more. But but importantly, they also reduced the standards required for um, like actually prosecuting police misconduct. So it would change what qualifies as prosecutable um, for harms and killings from requiring willful intent. Again, here's intent, but requiring willful intent uh, to hurt or kill somebody to um, rather than willful require knowingly and or rec- or with reckless disregard. So yeah. a significantly lower um, standard and would also um, define like causing harm or or death to be, um, quote, a substantial factor contributing to death or harm. So it's like so in this case, what they're what they're doing is just making it so that we are able to more able to hold police officers accountable um, and make them less untouchable. Yeah. Um, and another thing is the prohibition of no knock warrants uh, in mm. in drug related cases. Um, and if that provision, yeah. if that provision had been around, uh, Brianna Taylor would still be alive today mm. um, if that provision had already been there. Um, so how does this stack up to some of the things that activists are calling for, Michael? Well, importantly, there's no like level of, um, funding allocation change at all. And partially that's because they, they can't actually do that in many cases, like the local government budget, which is funded by taxes and allocated to the police and other sources is not subject to, um, you know, congressional review or approval so like that's actually something that would have to be taken at a more local level but they could certainly like you know federal funds are involved in a lot of things and they could certainly as part of this bill be trying to invest in um more of the programs that defund the police groups are calling for so you know as far as you don't have to defund the police to fund all the social programs that we're calling for it's just an important part of demilitarizing and making the streets safe yeah. um, from the police in certain cases. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah so there's really no like overlap with the defund component i think that a lot of these provisions are good necessary but not sufficient maybe yeah according to a lot of activists so like many of these things are already present in a lot of communities and they have good results in in many cases not perfect results for instance you know body cameras are um required in a lot of places but police often turn them off and so many bills involve penalties for turning off your body camera including the republican bill um but you know, that's like a good step, but not sufficient for totally reforming the police. So I think overall, these bills are, I think, I think all the lawmakers in this case are giving themselves a way bigger pat on the back than they probably deserve, especially against the Overton window of defund the police. And one other thing that I want to see addressed, and and this is a point that uh, Cornell West has made several times, is what is often the cause of crime because Mm. usually the cause of crime is levied to the individual when study after study after study shows that there is a greater association with crime to poverty so if Mm. you really do want to fight against crime the best way to do it is to fight against poverty one of the reasons why there's often a disproportionate amount of crime within minority neighborhoods is because minority neighborhoods, due to things like redlining, tend to be poorer. So in a lot of ways, the focus on let's make different standards for the police is Mm -hmm. something that corporate politicians can do in order to save face. Yeah. And it's good. It does need to happen. These are necessary reforms. But at the end of the day, a lot of them don't address another root of the problem, which is the fact that our economic system is also Mm -hmm. inherently racist. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think that's totally true. Like, this is very much a... I mean, it's 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 mostly a band-aid on a very particular subset of issues, which is um, violence on the part of police, yeah. and like that's super important. That's really problematic, um, and it's one of the most clear cases of injustice because you can cite so many cases of people who are totally innocent yeah. um, being killed by the police. But there's a more deeper there there are there's a deeper set of injustices here that like focusing on this success is kind of a lighting over. And, and I want to, you know, not to delve too deeply into those, but the narrative that I think like both parties are casting right now is a really counterproductive one. Like the Republicans are blaming the Democrats for, you know, just being political hacks who aren't going to support their relatively weak police reform bill because they really don't care about minorities. They just care about winning political points. And, you know, I think that's wrong. Um, But to your point, like this bill doesn't address the root of the problem and it doesn't even address the component, all the components of the problem that activists are calling for specifically related to um, police brutality. But, but even more importantly, in my mind, like the narrative that the 
that the Democrats are building around this bill is that it, you know, it's a huge win. Yeah. That like we have reached yeah. victory because the House has passed this police reform bill. And if this bill were signed into law, it would be a big victory. That would be great. But this bill is not going to get through the Senate. It's not going to get to Trump's desk. And even if it did, it doesn't have a veto-proof majority. And he's declared that he is going, that he would veto it. And that's not necessarily the fault of the Democrats. And nor am I saying that they should, um, you know, compromise for a significantly weaker bill just to get something passed. But I, I worry about trying to cast a narrative where this is a win. Yeah. Nothing has happened. That's the biggest. That's the biggest problem. Nothing with has happened. This in comparison the to the deep on the police. Nothing has happened, and the proposal for something to happen isn't even much. Yeah. So this is this right here yeah. is why the whole defund the police thing needs to be taken seriously, because not mm -hmm. only is it addressing a lot of these social issues, but the prospect of reallocating funds towards social programs designed to fight poverty is part of what addresses what causes crime in the first place. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, this will not solve the root cause. The whole idea of defund the police is to try to get at the root cause of these issues. Yeah. And this won't do it. And it certainly won't do it if it never becomes law. Yeah. And so, like, again, I'm not... I'm not trying to say that it's any one particular person's fault for this not becoming law, but we can't pretend like this is action because nothing has happened yet. And until something, some action is taken that will protect black people's lives, I think we're failing. Yeah. We need to stop having these fierce battles to make everything 2% better. Yeah. Like, this is, yeah, this yeah. is why the division in the Democratic Party is real and needs to be recognized. There is a progressive division and an establishment corporatist division in the Democratic Party. And the establishment division is about fighting these fierce-ass battles in order to make things 2% better and then compromising with Republicans to maybe make things 1% better. Now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat Ass of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is Florida Representative Matt Gates. Oh, man, I've never heard of this guy before. Really? Really? Yeah. See, the thing that surprises me is that he hasn't been our asshat before. <laughs> um, yeah, this this guy is, he's not a great dude. Um, hmm. So specifically, what he did today, or not today, but what he did recently. Uh, so he was giving a speech at some church in Florida. And, um, and he was talking about the idea of American privilege, being proud of Americans. And he made a point that was kind of screwed up, especially considering our current time. So, so he was talking about something that uh, President Calvin Coolidge had said about, um, you know, Americans being exceptional. So he, here, here's the quote. Here, here's the quotation. Calvin Coolidge said that as Americans, we are the peers of kings. 
And I don't think it's a bad thing if we start acting like it. Some might call that male privilege or white privilege. You know what? <laughs> These terms are just racist terms to try to tell people to shut up. And we're done being quiet. Okay, first off, since when have white people or males ever been quiet? Yeah. Also, uh, male privilege would be a sexist term. Yeah, buddy. yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, if, if we are assuming we that, know, it would We be... know to you everything, everything that's good is white and male and everything that's bad is other, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people can be white women, you know, Yeah, <laughs> and still have white privilege. So apparently, the fact that African Americans make up 13% of our population but uh, about a quarter of all police deaths. That's not racism. You know, the fact that mm. redlining oh, exists, no. that's not racism. The fact that slavery existed for hundreds of years in the United States, that's not racism. The fact that Jim Crow existed for about 100 years, that's not racism. The fact that mm -hmm. uh, the effects of Jim Crow are still felt because uh, people of color are still, put, are, are still in uh, communities that are disproportionately impoverished, that's not racism. The fact that our criminal justice system prosecutes black people worse than white people statistically, that's not racism. No. Saying the word white privilege... That's mm. racism. <laughs> oh yeah, and 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 beyond that, you know, white privilege, male privilege, just just doesn't exist. The fact that women earn seventy cents on the dollar compared to men—that's not that's not male privilege. The fact that women of color yeah. earn like fifty cents on the dollar compared to white men—that's neither white privilege nor male privilege. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like it. The the crazy thing to me is like. People take privilege so personally. It's like we're saying you have something that other people want. Yeah. <laughs> like and, being and, treated well. And then he tried to make his statement a little bit more inclusive. Mm. So he said, quote, I reject the notion of white privilege or black privilege or any type of privilege. We are all unified in one American privilege that we should be proud of and fight for with everything we have. So first off, if you're, if you're saying we should be proud of American privilege, then you believe in the notion of privilege. In privilege. Like you said you, yeah. you reject the notion of privilege, but then say, oh, but American privilege, that's what we're proud of. And also, who the hell is talking about black privilege? Yeah, that's the <laughs> thing he made up. I mean, <laughs> like, I guess there, there are some idiots out there that think that, uh, you know, uh, affirmative action is black privilege, but like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the welfare queen yeah. racist dynamic. Like, Oh, by, by doing all these things to, to in some way, try to correct the incredible historic injustices that leave, I think like $1 of white person or $100 of white person wealth for every dollar of, of african-american wealth in the united states like that that's uh that's just you're just it's unfair yeah <laughs> so it's it's ridiculous th this guy has always been a clown um and, and like i said he's another person that i'm relatively surprised we haven't had on before but but he has mm -hmm. made the cut so a deep go. and personal congratulations to matt gates for being our Asshat of the Week. So we're going to talk a little bit about the 
concept of social media censorship. And, and there are several mm -hmm. different levels of this. First off, there's the question of what should the government do and yeah. what sh should social media companies do? So let's start out with the government. Because there, yeah. is, there is one thing that I do want to point out. If you are somebody that does believe in the principle, the absolute principle of free speech, mm -hmm. you can't necessarily use a First Amendment argument for why social media platforms should never, social, should never uh, monitor content. Because social media platforms are technically considered private companies. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you can't say that if Facebook censors somebody, that that means they violated their First Amendment rights. Because Facebook yeah. isn't the government. Yeah, the First Amendment specifically applies to the government um, not abridging the freedom of the press or of free speech. Yeah. Now, one proposal that I've heard that I, I do find this prospect rather interesting is the idea of regulating social media companies as public utilities, mm, which, interesting. which, interestingly enough, would actually be like more government involvement, but it would be more government involvement in order to increase the personal rights of the people on the platform, meaning that you would have a First Amendment right to say whatever the hell you want and it couldn't get taken down. Sure, sure. So that is one proposal. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, let's, let's establish more things before we discuss specifically how we feel about that. Um, mm -hmm. so the other proposal is about social, the responsibility of social media companies. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think it gets more complicated, at least for me. Now, I, I'm, I'm not sure about exactly how I feel about the public utility thing. Uh, I definitely do think that it's ridiculous for people to shout first amendment on private companies, but. I do think that if you are somebody that takes a principled approach to free speech, that that does need to be absolute, even if we are talking about private companies. So if we're talking about Facebook, if we're talking about YouTube, if we're talking about Twitter, if you are taking a principled absolutist free speech stance, then you have to say it all stays. So, the question then is, do we allow all content? And then the second question is, if we do decide that we allow the content, what about algorithms designed to put up fact checks if people share false information? So mm -hmm. I want to specifically, I want us to specifically focus on that part of it, that angle, because we can have another, sure. a, a whole other conversation about. Um, how hate speech factors into this. But I want to specifically yeah. talk about the spreading of false information. Yeah. And ultimately, the, the, the discussion of hate speech is, the outcome of the discussion of hate speech is probably predicated on the outcome of the discussion of the limitations or the responsibilities of social media in general. Yeah, absolutely. Like, hate speech is, in some ways, a unique type of speech or speech acts, but in a lot of ways, it's not. Yeah. So a lot of leftists praise the idea of automatic fact checks in social media. So like, you know, mm -hmm. I, if, you're, if you're going through Facebook, someone shares an article from a fake news site or someone shares a meme that is factually incorrect, you have some type of automatic article under it that says, hey, this is wrong. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of leftists praise that. And I think there is something appealing about that. But here's my problem with it. And, and this, this is actually, this is a point that has been made by people on the right. You know, and I will, I will own that. Who fact checks the fact checker? Sure. And, sure, and let me, sure. and let me, let me talk about that from a leftist perspective. You know, because I feel like a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you're just regurgitating right-wing talking points. Let me, let me talk about that from a left-wing perspective. During the Iraq War, it was considered fact by the media that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, even though the UN report that showed that they did not came out, I think it was like a month, maybe two months before we actually officially invaded Iraq, even though that UN report said that they didn't, it was still considered just just fact by a lot of the United States media that Iraq just had weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. So if Facebook had existed today and the same algorithm existed today, can you trust, can you honestly trust that that algorithm would not try to do a, a false fact check on someone who shares that there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, even though at this point, based on what we saw from the UN, we knew they didn't. I I don't think I can trust social media to do that. And I think at the end of the day, it's concerning. I have, I have concerns. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there are are just so many issues kind of all going on at once um, in all of this stuff. I'd say on that, on that specific point about who fact checks the fact checker, so, so traditionally, the way that has been done in the United States, because we have no limitations on news media itself, right? Like there, there just aren't regulations on what they can put out, except for some things on like pornography on, um, on like broad broadcast. But in general, like there is an absolute right of, of free speech for news media. And the way that, but, but it has been traditionally effective at policing itself as an industry and the way that it does that is through competition is that like the whole point is to be accurate and thorough and provide um, a valuable resource to people via good information and to the extent that you're not able to provide that or not willing to provide that you eventually go out of business because people stop paying attention to you that has been incredibly complicated by the internet because the revenue models of news media are all turned upside down but it's it's even more complicated in this case because there aren't really competitors for social media companies like facebook and twitter google youtube are each basically independently monopolies on their specific ways of curating content and so Maybe not Google, because there are other browsers, but certainly uh, th- like there YouTube are other and, browsers. <laughs> well, <laughs> as a Google purist, I agree with you. Um, but I, I think I tried Firefox on someone's computer the other day. It was really, it was tricky. Oh, I thought you were talking about search um, engines specifically. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. I was. No, I do use, I do um, actually use Firefox. But anyway, but anyway, <laughs> the, the main point is that like these social media companies are essentially like monopolies of their thing yeah and so there isn't um a way that competition can function to really hold them accountable for truth but but specifically on the point to your to your point nathan about like the iraq example um 
so so I one I'd want to be really careful about not holding algorithmic like truth results to a higher standard than we hold like news media itself. So to your point, like, yes, in that case, the Facebook algorithm would almost certainly have incorrectly reported that, you know, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. But that was also what all the news media was reporting at the same time. So to, to say that we just couldn't trust an algorithm to get to the truth because it wouldn't be able to get to a more accurate version of the truth than we expect on an everyday basis from human beings is probably a standard that's too high because ultimately the algorithm will only do what humans provide it. And the main inputs would be human data sources. And so it might maybe, maybe it does like a rank ordering where like, like, you know, UN is right at the top. And so if, even if the New York Times comes out and says they have weapons of mass destruction, if the New York, if the UN comes out and says, no, they don't, then it defaults to that. But ultimately, like, um, when we're evaluating this, I don't think we can necessarily hold social media companies to the standard of perfect truth quality all the time, because we don't expect that in any part of our media. True. That's part of why I think it's not the best idea to then have an absolute algorithm that decides what the truth is, you know, that it, it, yeah, it kind yeah. of, it's, it essentially becomes this digital ministry of truth. So because of how, I mean, because of how flawed it often is, and I don't mean to be taking like a postmodernist perspective on this, no, no, no. but because of how flawed reporting can sometimes happen. And sometimes the flawed reporting is because that's what the United States government is saying. Sure. And totally. you know, if the United States government as it was during the Iraq war is telling the news media something that is just flat out incorrect. Yeah. yeah you yeah. can't necessarily blame the news media for it because they're reporting mm. on what the government, the did. facts that are available. Yeah. However, you can say that the news media, if it were fulfilling its purpose, should be taking another step and challenging that. Mm -hmm. And if news yeah, media was challenging that, and that was considered conventional wisdom because it's coming from the government, then that gets silenced by a social media algorithm that is specifically designed to decide what is true and what is not true. Yeah, except, except I'm skeptical of that because ultimately, like, the... You, so I'm not saying this is exactly how it would be, but in, in its current form, it is not a thing that goes out there and does reporting independently and finds truth and then writes the article. It goes out there and looks at available sources and, you know, tries to find the most accurate, truthful claims that are reported in, re in like, you know, trustworthy places in common and reports on those. And so ultimately, like, it, you're right that it, it, there's no way that it could replace... Um, news media itself, and I think we should be skeptical of anything that says that it, it, it should. But I think like having a little icon that says, hey, this, this represents something that seems like it might be false information. Maybe check this source. Yeah, it's linking you to a source, and in that way it's funneling you to a specific set of facts. But it's not saying, hey, this is the ultimate truth. I am the arbiter of fact no need to look further. Now, the fact that people may not look further is problematic, but ultimately it's probably 
the, the probable function is that it will link you to some reputable news source. And so ultimately, the arbiter of fact ends up being the news source filtered through the platform. And so I, I agree that I'm a little bit, a little hesitant of the amount of power that gives, um, that gives social media companies. But I think that like, they're already doing that. They just aren't transparent about it. And they're not giving us tools to evaluate it on our own. You know, like they're already, um, they already employ thousands of, of, of positions they call moderators in countries like Ireland and India and the Philippines. And with algorithms, they review more than a million pieces of flagged content a day. When you report a piece of information, it, it goes and they review it. And then they either decide to take it down or uh, to ban the user or, you know, to remove things that qualify as hate speech. Or, so they're already, what, what they're already doing is taking information and censoring it. Um, but they're not doing it in a, in a transparent way. And I feel like that's where we have to yeah. get to. We have to get to a place where we understand what we're getting ourselves into. And honestly, like a, and, and, and another point that I want to just make as well, and this is actually a point that Zuckerberg was making too, like some statements of fact are easier to evaluate than others. Yeah, absolutely. So like, so like Saddam, whether Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction in 2001, that was a really big question mark. And not knowing the answer to it um, or getting it wrong, I should say getting it right was really hard. Um, but things like... I disagree with you that. Know, I, I completely okay. disagree with that. I think the U.S. I'm talking about on, like the before the U.N. came out with its... Before the U.N. comes out with its but, report. But the, the fact of the matter is the U.N. came out with their report before we went into Iraq. Yeah, like, I it was before that. that. Yeah, yeah. And it was be and the reason why we still went into it is because the United States government was straight up lying to us. Sure. So sure, it sure, wasn't sure. that it was hard to get the truth, is that it was that the government, which was supposed to be the source of the information, that that they were falsifying that, the truth. But that does mean that it was hard to get to the truth, right? Like if if your sources of data are bad sources of data, you are not necessarily like held responsible for trusting the data that comes from a, a a reputable good source, right? Like if 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 the generally speaking, if the New York Times Times reports something, and then the Washington Post reports something, and the Wall Street Journal reports something, like we are not expected to go out there and then actually find the information ourselves. We're trusting a reliable source, yeah. and so like if a claim ends up being false, but the path that you've followed to arrive at that conclusion is reasonable like yes you've arrived at a false claim and you should correct it but like your path for getting there wasn't necessarily flawed and so i guess that's my point about like this social media fact checking in general is like we should be holding them to a really rigorous standard we should be holding them to be transparent um but ultimately they're not going to arrive at a truth that none of us know yeah you know what i mean yeah so, so maybe that's, maybe it's a bad example about whether it was easy or hard to know the truth, but, but we could certainly come up with examples that it's easy to know about the truth, right? Like, yeah. like if you were to post something that says, you know, COVID kills young people exclusively, that's pretty easy to fact check. Yeah. Yeah. True. Um, so I, I, I get that. And, and I, and I would like to address something cause I feel like there might be some people that 
are listening to what I'm saying and juxtaposing it to what we said in Tips for Good about you know media mm. bias fact check. Sure. Um, one point that I would like to make is that media bias fact check is a resource that you can go to to determine if a source is generally credible. But mm. it is important for me to... For, it was important for me to, me to note that it, at the end of the day, it's not a perfect source. And yeah. there's a difference between promoting that and saying that a platform that is a public sphere should have an overlord injecting their own version of truth into it. Now, again, I'm yeah. not saying that that means that there is no truth, therefore we shouldn't try to find it. Yeah, what course, I'm saying is that I'm not sure I trust a corporation like Facebook to be that arbiter. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're in a really tricky spot to your to that exact point because right now I don't think our legal system or even our, our government or even we, as smart as we are, <laughs> know exactly how to deal with this, right? Because yeah. like, like the Supreme Court, and in our conversation, we have referred to Facebook as a public square many times, right? Yeah. And so in traditionally in our law, public squares are um, the, the metaphor that is an area of perfectly unrestricted free speech, which is, the, and the whole point of that is that like any, everyone should be able to access the public square to be able to um, speak. And, and that is the manifestation of free speech. But the problem is that Facebook is is being treated like a public sphere, thus it can't have any regulation, but it has a whole lot of its own interests involved, to your point. Like, like it is certainly to Facebook's benefit to if, you know, McDonald's or Starbucks is a big sponsor, go ahead and not flag um, claims about, mm, you know, that's a great the point. health of McDonald's <laughs> as, you know, factually incorrect. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, we're, we're both treating them with all the privilege of a perfectly free speech zone and therefore none of the regulation or limitations that go along with that or, or none of the regulation, um, all of the freedoms that go along with that, but also saying, you know, you're a private company, do whatever you want. Yeah. See, this is... And so that's a really tricky dynamic. See, this is part of, you know, what I said earlier about the potential regulating it as a public utility. Now, mm -hmm. again, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that. I think it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah. But, but let's, let's, let's take a step back on, because I think that we're still... <laughs> I, I'm not sure that we're still in agreement. I, 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 don't, I don't think we're, we're in agreement um, yet about... Like fact the fact checking, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from Facebook. However, do we at least agree that the removal of content because the Facebook algorithm decides that it's not true, that that's not okay? Yeah, I totally agree okay, with you. Cool. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say like that is really problematic because and, and the removal and or the like sandbagging right like making content that no one can access is the same thing as removal essentially so like that that stuff seems um 
really problematic. What I like about the fact check setup is that it is enabling rather than limiting. And even if it's enabling in a particular direction, like I get, I get the worry about who checks fact checks the fact checker. And honestly, I found my example about McDonald's pretty compelling. Oh yeah. That was a good, but that was really good. But like, but in general, when you find something that is really clearly false, a little icon that says double check this seems like a pretty low regrets thing to include. Yeah. Like there, there's this, there's this one guy in my family that, posts a lot of weird things and 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 he posted um and he posted this thing against the electoral college basically saying that los angeles has a larger population um than 42 states in the united states and i saw that and i was like that can't be true so i looked it up real quick and it turns out the number was like maybe 24 states has a higher population Mm -hmm. than like 24 states. And that's a really simple fact check. And so I can understand if something like that. And the funny thing was underneath it, it said Facebook has removed this like four times. And I was like, well, look, I don't believe, I don't necessarily think it should have done that, but this is wrong. Like this is false, (laughs) you know? And it took me two seconds to figure that out. So I, I guess when we are talking about things that are just blatantly easily disprovable, mm-hmm. there might, there might be an argument. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. It, it gets complicated and it does. If yeah. there is going to be an arbiter, I'm not sure I trust Facebook to be that arbiter. Yeah. I, t- I totally agree with you there. And I think, I think ultimately Facebook is one of the most efficient curators and providers and processors of information in the world in the known universe they're they're like one of the best groups at doing that yeah if they put their focus and work into finding solutions for these things to aid transparency they certainly could do that like like just being able to have something you click on and view the actual first origin of a, of a particular piece of information in a post would be really helpful. You know, like that would have prevented a significant amount of disinformation in the 2016 campaign. Now it says it sounds easy to say that, but like if, if, if Facebook were able to set something up such that it didn't delete the posts, but you knew it was coming from a Russian bot, yeah, that would, that would go a long way. Yeah. That's a good point. And and again, this is why that's one of the big reasons why I say that I'm I don't know exactly how I feel at the end of the day, because there is definitely a problem with the spreading of false information by Russian bots or even just dishonest actors. I mean, look at Pizzagate, for example, you know, a guy shot up a pizza parlor because he thought that this this pizza place in uh, in D.C. uh, had Mm -hmm. a child sex ring under it like in the basement yeah. the damn parlor didn't even have a basement like yeah. and the guy yeah. shot up the I think, place yeah i think that's another another component of this also that often i think people overlook as a potential midway solution you know we're not going to thought control we're trying to like address specific problems and that is anonymity i think like in a in a true public square anonymity is not preserved and that's 
important, right? Like yeah. that is one of the ways that, yeah, that's that a, good point. a public square, square gets like regulated by the bounds of social acceptability and fact-checking and information. If, if you were able to troll a public square, it would quickly become untenable and unuseful for the spread of, of good information and good conversation and, and discussion and the good deliberation of, of, of conclusions. And that's the situation we have online in a lot of cases, like via anonymity um, and via and, and because you're able to create a bunch of false accounts. So even if you're deleted from a platform, you can just go and create a new one. Basically, it means that your no matter how heinous your actions, no matter how heinous your words, there's no there's no social balance to that. Um, and and you can and you can gain like some of these. In, in incredibly and impossibly over the top amount of influence that that like QAnon has achieved um, via this via anonymity, and I think that's that's really problematic. So even while we are not exactly sure what to do, the Supreme Court is at a loss. No legislation is really moving through on this issue. Some corporations are actually taking action on this and trying to hit Facebook, I guess, it seems, where it hurts. So um, Starbucks, Unilever, Microsoft, a bunch of other companies are pulling ad dollars um, over um, hate speech and some other concerns. Now, again, like Facebook regulating what hate speech is and censoring, like that doesn't that doesn't seem like a good thing. But the fact that um, these companies are actually like trying to put their money where their mouth is and make Facebook actually like pay attention to this stuff or it's going to cost them. seems like at least a good amount of awareness. I'm not sure if it's the ultimate solution and I'm, I'm become more and more skeptical of market-based solutions to these things. Yeah. But. No, no. My, my, the first thing I'm thinking of is, I mean, call me a cynic, call me a cynical social Democrat, but I I rarely trust that when corporations donate to any cause that it's sincere. Yeah, fair enough. All right, and to end out this episode on a bit of a high note, we will do some highlights. So, Nathan, what were your highlights this week? Uh, my highlights this week, probably the uh, Supreme Court ruling on mm. uh, the Louisiana abortion law. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to see Roberts shift his position. Um, and what was interesting is he, according to him, he didn't necessarily shift his position, but what he did was respect, respect precedent. Precedent, yeah. Which is interesting. Which is what justices are supposed to do. Well, but at the same time, like, <laughs> you know, the Supreme Court justices, I mean, they're the ultimate precedent setters. Yeah. So he could have yeah. created a new precedent, but he didn't. So I and I, so I respected that, and it was good to see uh, an obvious restriction to reproductive freedom struck down by the Supreme Court, um, and yeah, you know, and alleviate one of the great fears of the Trump era, which is you know overturning important uh, abortion cases. What about yeah, you, Michael? Totally. What was your highlight? Um, so for me, so for my anniversary with my wife, which was 
three years married, nine years together. Um, we went camping, which was awesome, deep in the wilderness of West Virginia. And it was just an amazing retreat. I was, we didn't have any signal or internet. We were totally without connection to the outside world and all of its obligations for a solid like two and a half days. And it was an eerie and really relaxing experience. So it was awesome. And then he came home and he was like, what did I miss? And I said, well, Trump blew up the world. Yeah. <laughs> Which is always the risk when you disconnect for even a, a few minutes. Yeah. No, that's, that's what happened when I, uh, when I went on my, um, my anniversary vacation uh, mm -hmm. with my wife. Um, that was the week that uh, the George Floyd protest started. Yeah. So I hadn't heard about it <laughs> until I got back. And I was like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um exactly all right and with that thank you so much for listening to the perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week